Welcome to the Top Advisor Marketing Podcast brought to you by Proudmouth. I'm your host, Matt Halloran. Being your own loud is not new to marketing, but the mindset, strategies, and resources to help you get there are evolving faster than this industry is keeping up. It is time to find a new perspective on what works why and how to move your business forward. Listen as I interview guests to help you learn from them how to be your own loud. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to another Top Advisor Marketing Podcast. This is Matt Halloran, of course, and I'm today interviewing uh, somebody that I met through LinkedIn. And uh, the mergers and acquisition space is something that's always fascinated me. And I'm bringing on a true expert, a person who this is their life, this is their job, and this is their experience. His name is Alan Darby. He's the CEO of Alaris Acquisitions. And we're going to talk about M&A. And remember, the Top Advisor Marketing Podcast is about how you can utilize different strategies to market yourself more effectively and grow your practice. And guess what? M&A is an amazing way to do this. So, Alan, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be on. Man, so when we uh, had our kind of pre-call and we were talking about the different stuff that you could talk about, uh, the levels of complexity here, Alan, are just insane. But before we really dive into that, you have a pretty amazing track record in this space. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your history? Yeah, happy to. Happy to. I guess most relevant, I I started out in the business as an advisor. So I come from that world. I've owned and operated an RAA for just over 20 years. That's important, I think, as it relates to M&A, particularly because I got to experience what life was like owning an RIA and all the complexity they're in and the problems that kind of crop up in different size, you know, life points as I grew the practice. That, that I think, adds a lot to my ability to help advisors think through the, the various points of complexity as it relates to considering a partnership with another firm. And partnership is kind of code for acquisition mm-hmm. based on how it's structured and designed. So I did that for about 20 years. And we were a traditional wealth management firm offering you know, financial planning and portfolio management to mass affluent and high net worth families. Probably the only interesting thing that I would say looking back that I did was we grew by acquisition. So oh. I just sort of stumbled on it as I was thinking about how to grow my business. I think I came across a small tax uh, practitioner who had done some financial services on the side and he was looking to sell his business. And I thought, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't I do that instead of trying to grow organically all the time? And that's how I kind of got my toe in the water uh, for acquisitions. We did nine acquisitions throughout that time. Smaller practices typically, but it really helped me understand how to source uh, an acquisition, how to deal with all the the intellectual complexity, probably more commonly the emotional complexity of what a seller is kind of going through. Probably uh, one of the bright points of my career was I got to meet a guy named Joe Duran. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the listeners know who Joe is. He was the CEO of United Capital. I met Joe. It was actually a mutual wholesaler that was calling on us as well as United uh, that when he found out that I was doing acquisitions, he said, hey, you got to you got to meet this guy, Joe Duran. He's on the West Coast. He's doing the same thing. And so he connected us and uh, Joe uh, and his team came out. They were looking at us. I think we were probably one of the very first acquisitions that they were contemplating doing. Maybe they had done one at that time. And we were also doing accounting firm acquisitions. So when they came out and met with us, 
while we hit it off, they didn't want to be in the accounting firm acquisition business. And so they, they said, let's, uh, let's just kind of agree not to do something. And, uh, but we stayed in touch over the years. And as I continued growing my practice, I actually sold my business in 2009. So I've also been a seller. So not only did I uh, do several acquisitions, but I've also sat in the seat of the seller, really trying to decide, is this a good deal? And all the, the things that kind of come along with that. Uh, took about a year and a half off from the business. In around 2011, I decided, I think I might want to get back into the business. There was some unfinished business that I, I had not yet completed. And so I said, let's go give it another whirl and needed to go replug in. So mm -hmm. I went to the Schwab conference, which because that's who I custodied with before. And I'm walking around the vendor hall. I thought to myself, I bet Joe Duran is here. It just kind of serendipitously, serendipitously, it, he walks right in front of me like 30 seconds later. So I grabbed him and we reconnected and I shared what had transpired in my life. And of course, they had been hitting their stride. They're around five billion at that point. Told him I was getting ready to get started again. And he said, well, you know, we are we are really uh, growing rapidly and could use someone like you on our team to because you've been an RIA. You know what it's like. You've done acquisitions. We're on the West Coast. What would you think about joining our partnership team on the East Coast? Wow. I, I took over as an independent contractor with them, what, what, what is now known as a buyer advisor, although I didn't know what that term meant at the time. I, I led their team on the East half of the country, representing them on all of their M&A transactions, specifically the outbound sourcing of M&A. Eventually took over nationally. So I built a team <laughs> of eight people, ultimately, that we sourced a number of their acquisitions from 2012 to 2019. I think we did 33 acquisitions for them, hmm. which was a big part of their transaction with Goldman Sachs. So many of the listeners know about the Goldman Sachs acquisition of United Capital, uh, which was a great, I think, transaction for the partners. Phenomenal run with my time at United. I loved it all. But when Goldman acquired us, the show was over, so to speak. Sure. The gentleman that I reported to, Matt Brinker, left to go to Merchant Investment Management, which is a, um, a, a partner, uh, a firm out of Manhattan. And I took my team and we started Alaris Acquisitions. And the basic premise was to keep doing what we did for United all those years uh, as a buyer advisor. But now we represent a number of firms in the industry who, uh, like United many years ago, uh, they've, they've hit a certain size and scale, but they want to grow by adding inorganic uh, acquisition growth to their plate. They don't have the internal M&A team, mm -hmm. so they hire us to represent them. So we kind of play the role of matchmaker and, and trying to find firms, smaller RIAs, typically around 100 million to half a billion is a kind of a sweet spot, who can align with our clients, whatever their you know worldview is, their culture, economic model, and all the rest. So that, that's what we do. We're, we're, all right. So I'm, I need to rewind a number of years here. You sold your practice in 09. I mean, yes. wasn't that like the worst possible time to sell a practice? It, it was. It was it, Honestly, it was not a great outcome for yeah. me. We actually had dipped our toe in managing some uh, private placements that didn't do, do so well. And like everyone who lost money, so did we. And you know, I, I thought, well, now's the time for me to exit. And so sure, I did. Sure. Wow. Okay. So you you've been doing this for for a long time. What what are the biggest, what are the trends that you're seeing? I mean, are these these mega firms? Is that what's winning? Or is it Joe Wall Street or or Joe Main Street that's winning with MA right now? 
Well, I guess probably the biggest trend is everyone seems to be a buyer. <laughs> if you, oh, if, wow. you uh, if you get in a room of financial advisors and ask them who's interested in acquiring, every hand seems to want to yeah. go up. As we're out there doing our marketing, looking for firms who, who want to talk to our clients about what it would mean to partner with them, again, code for acquisition, we get at least four to five appointments a week, requests of firms that are saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you guys about maybe representing us. So there's just this massive interest in acquiring firms. And I think perhaps they they have some uh, misconceptions about uh, how easy it is, sure. uh, not only to find someone, but uh, how to integrate them successfully in such a way that it doesn't disrupt their happy right. family. But that that would definitely be a trend is everyone seems to want to be an acquirer. Sure. Along with that, the the industry as a whole is as robust as I've ever seen it. Back in my United Capital days, when we're out there talking to firms who would be interested in transacting with them, if I had a month where it was 15 to 20 firms who raised their hand and say, hey, Alan, we'd like to talk to you about what it means to partner with United. Today, we're easily doing 50 plus a month of firms that are the, for the very first time saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you about what it would mean to partner potential with a client of yours. So there's this there's this massive interest in it, which is natural. You know, the, the demographics of the industry right. just are aging and, and firms are looking at it and say, hey, we've, we've got to we've got to transact at some point. When is the right time? And, you know, what are the different models that exist? Mm-hmm. That's another trend I would say that's that's changed is the models you know, historically, there have been two kind of dominant models of a full acquisition model, like a United, and then like a partial acquisition model that you might expect from someone like a Focus Partners. The differences are, are many, but um, one of them would be like the, the, the points of integration were different yep. from those two dominant models. The full acquisition was going to be fully integrated, rebranding, new tech stack, new yep. everything, where the minority was pretty much here's a check and you know, just keep on trucking. We won't try to redo anything for you. Right. Well, now we're seeing a trend where there are firms that will be, we're offering a minority transaction, but also with the integration that we've seen from oh, the yeah. full acquisition model. So I think that's right. a really cool development that's taken place as well. Sure, sure. With the aging demographic of a financial services professional, and I mean, I, I don't I don't know where those numbers are now. What, what is the average advisor's age now? Do you know what that is off the top of your head? Uh, I don't know exactly, but I can hear, you know, rule of thumb type anecdotal. It's around 59. Right. Is the average Which age is freaking old, right? So, it's old. Yeah, it's old. Uh, you know, because I, I should be that's the pot calling the kettle black here, my friend. But when it comes to what I've always heard, and so in my consulting days, I helped people do some M&A, but mostly it was like BD switches or going to RIAs. But when um, I would hear advisors say to me, well, Matt, why would I sell my business for a multiple? Why wouldn't I just stay in? And, and on top of that, well, you go to conferences and people will say, they, they give you these ridiculous valuation numbers. In fact, I had David Grau Jr. on the podcast a while ago, and him and I were joking, uh, not happily, like very frustrated, that sellers think that their businesses are worth so much more than they actually are. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like for you to break that down. How 
what are some of the things that our listeners could do today that would help increase their valuation so when they do hire you to either be a seller representative or a buyer representative that they know that they're going to get the most out of their practice what are some of the things that you're like damn that's a good practice right well there's some of the obvious things that they they're good financial advisors you know right? so the quality of their offer is compelling you know so they're they're i'll start with just being competent as a financial advisor All right would be nice you know <laughs> if we're going to consider buying you we want to make sure that you share our values and our ethics yeah. and degree of uh, fiduciary um, standards etc but in terms of uh, i mean the valuation is ultimately going to come down to a multiple of net income or ebitda right, right? so if you want to maximize the valuation of your practice we have to maximize that what we see routinely are firms that are overstaffed. They either have bad process or bad technology, sometimes a combination of both. Mm -hmm. And they simply throw bodies at it to try to solve right. the problem. For example, normally we would see firms that are around 300,000 revenue per employee. So if I were just to look back at all the firms that I've talked to over the years and look at the number of employees on their website, I'd multiply it times 300,000 that gives me in the ballpark of probably what their revenue looks like. Okay. You, you asked the question like, why would I partner? Well, one of the reasons is you're, you're gaining efficiency. Your practice is fundamentally, fundamentally being transformed. Mm -hmm. And where we see that show up is that revenue per employee number keeps going uh, north once they're a part of the new entity. So okay. I would say, one, we have to maximize your EBITDA. So start with the staffing and make sure that you're uh, running that as efficiently as possible. Don't overstaff. And you can, uh, not knowing anything about whoever's listening their business, if you're less than 300,000 revenue per employee, it's probably due to, one, you've either made investments into your staff recently before revenue materialized. Sure. Yeah. That would be recognized by a buyer. Sure. Although, uh, frankly, I've seen a lot of firms tell me that, hey, we've made these investments for growth. You check back with them a year later, well, how much oh, have you grown? Not much. Right. You know, two years, three years later, it's really just to cover up bad process or bad technology. Sure. So staffing would be one. Uh, I would say anything that you can bring to the table that is organic growth centric for an acquirer, like if you have a niche in marketing, mm -hmm. that is very attractive to a buyer because they hope they can take that perhaps scale it up and roll it out across their, yeah. their footprint. So yeah. that would, most firms are referral driven. Nothing wrong with that. You know, that's great, but it's not as predictable or as consistent. And therefore, part of their reason for maybe joining another organization, a larger firm, is that firm has organic growth initiatives yeah. that they don't have and they can integrate that into their practice. But acquirers, it's not just an asset purchase or a revenue purchase. Most of the firms, certainly the ones we represent, they want to grow. They want to, right. it's a, so it's a talent acquisition as much as anything. So really evaluate yourself and, and think to yourself, what I, we get that you're evaluating an acquirer for how, what things they bring to the table, but mm -hmm. think about yourself. What do we bring to the table in terms of additive value that the acquirer could take and bring it throughout their whole organization? And, and please don't say that you're honest and trustworthy and <laughs> because everyone says that right uh, and so it's like we assume that to be true or we wouldn't be talking to you you, know? you, you covered that in the whole value section which was the <laughs> predetermined filter I, that's the thing in, on my marketing and websites that stuff drives me absolutely crazy what besides overstaffing and 
thinking that your practice could be worth way more than it really is. What are some of the other mistakes that you either see on either end, Alan, whether that's on the buyer side or the seller side, that if if you could drop that knowledge on this podcast so that people didn't make those mistakes, what would that be? You mean like mistakes in how they've built their business? Like or mistakes okay, in how they enter into an acquisition dialogue? That, that would be it. So so the, the acquisition aspect of it or a merger aspect of it, what are some of the things that, that you know, the, it's the slap on the forehead like, oh, dang it, I wish I would have known this from either side? Well, I can talk about some common things that I'm constantly having to educate the people about because okay. it's a misconception that they have, a misperception. For example, often I, I was on phone call today with someone and they were telling me, you know, like I'm, I'm, I've heard about these, these different M&A opportunities, but, you know, I'm not ready to retire. I don't, I'm not ready to stop. I want to keep working for another 10 years and so. So that would be one of the first things that I try to help them understand is it's not most acquirers are not interested in you leaving. It's a, again, it's a talent acquisition. So they're interested to have you stay. Now they want to solve the succession problem too. If you haven't hired that bench strength that will ultimately succeed you when you yep. take over, they will likely want to go do that as well. Mm-hmm. Transacting with a third party is not equivalent to you going to the beach or going golfing every day. That's number one. Two, secondly, I would say if you do have successors in your business, if you do have that younger team that's already in place that perhaps you've had a handshake deal to take over the practice, or there's maybe something informal or even formal, transacting with another firm does not remove that opportunity from them. In fact, in many ways, I can argue why it would enhance the opportunity for the junior team to be a part of a broader organization with more depth of resources and structure. Part and parcel with that would be the natural assumption that an internal succession is the easier route. That's something that we deal with a lot where it's obvious as to why they think that it's less change involved. They know the people that are presumably going to take the reins. They know the clients. And so they don't think there's going to be much client disruption. Well, that all might be true, but there's also risks associated with that. For example, are they an entrepreneur? Do they know how to run a business? Right. You no, know, we get that they're great people. They're great mm-hmm. advisors. They're really good employees for you. But that is not the same mm-hmm. as being an entrepreneur who understands how to run a business and move the needle forward. And if you have that junior six, uh, that junior team, that is great. They're great advisors, great competent people. Being a part of a larger organization that helps them run the business, give them structure and guide rails is a wonderful marriage of those two concepts. So yeah. Yeah, those would yeah. be a th- few things that I say that I, I, I'm constantly trying to re-educate people when they start with those points of view. A couple of the firms that I had worked with previously, they were they were either f- familial succession or, or and that's the one that's really coming to mind. And I remember sitting down and meeting with the advisor's son and the son saying, dude, I hate rainmaking. I hate, I hate, selling and all of this stuff. I want to stay in this lane. And I'm like, you're never going to practice. You're screwed, right, buddy? I mean, you're going to, your practice is going to die, you know, after dad's gone. And and those are the sorts of people that I love that you're bringing that up, Alan. I think that's fantastic that there are so many opportunities in hitching your wagon to something else that can offer products and services, systems, tech, marketing, all of those things that through M&A that you can get, and you can still maintain some semblance of independence as long as you're looking for that. 
Yeah, well, th that is a, a major point. Um, and frankly, it's the number one barrier for people to consider transacting with another firm, which is loss of control, you know, and it makes sense. I felt the same way. I had my practice. I'm an entrepreneur. A lot of people have left captive environments or, you know, the right. big corporate environment. They're on their own. They love it. They make all the decisions. Sometimes the, the uh, control of everything has its burdens of itself, but by and large, they enjoy being an entrepreneur and the thought of becoming an employee for the evil empire just makes their stomach turn. Yeah. We call that the autonomy trade. The, the reality is you want stuff from a acquirer. The stuff could be you know, a lot of things from centralizing operations to practice management, to organic growth, succession, all these things. Well, that stuff comes at a cost of autonomy. You're not gonna be able to make all of the decisions anymore as a part of this larger organization. The question is, what decisions are you left with? Right. And the reality is there are a myriad of models, firms that, that have structured their offer to cater to just about anyone. That's why mm -hmm. we have multiple clients yeah. now that, that hit the spectrum of firms that are highly entrepreneurial. Like they're going to centralize your operations and pretty much leave you alone after that. And we, on the other end of the spectrum, we have clients that are very standardized, very processed. It's their way, you know, and their way is great, by the way. It's, it's probably better than your way, yeah. but it's, it's, there's non-negotiable like you, but you can vet that going into it. It's simply a matter of me sitting down with you if you were working with us and saying, hey, what's on this, on all of these points of autonomy, all these points of decision making, what are you comfortable giving up and divesting versus what are you adamant about retaining? For example, I've never heard anyone say they, they want to retain compliance. <laughs> you know, that just doesn't happen. So they're most likely very comfortable with divesting that. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of firms tell us we don't want to give up investment management. We, we feel like that's a core value to what mm -hmm. we bring to the table for our clients. And if a partner were to tell us You've got to stop doing that. Well, that's right. a non-starter for us. You know, gotcha. so it's just really evaluating that. But that's the autonomy autonomy trade. There are so many buyers out there today that you can find someone who will give you that happy blend of of maximum lift, maximum fundamental improvements of my, into my business, which can only come can only come if you integrate with them. Sure. Right. But that comes at a cost of autonomy. And so where does that happy medium exist? Yeah, I, I used to say all the time, uh, for everything that you want in life, you have to be willing to give up something proportionate to that want, you know, because nothing in life is for free. And if you want to be able to retain something, there's going to be a cost to that if you want to give up something, there's a there's a cost for that. But I love that you're saying this. So through your discovery process, I'm going to get granular here, if you don't mind, if, if I'm interested in this world let's say I'm a, an advisor who's looking to uh, be acquired because of some of the things that you said, how long, Alan, is that kind of discovery thing that you take advisors through just to set clear expectations for people who are listening, who, first off, I'm sure that there's a lot of people, Alan, who are sitting here listening, thinking, damn, I didn't know. I didn't know that there were all of these great opportunities out there. And there are certain things that I hate in my business, like HR, compliance, tech stacks, you know, all of those sorts of things. And I didn't know that I could hitch my wagon to somebody and still maintain some autonomy. So that was brilliant. And thank you for that. What does it look like? What does it look like engaging you? I mean, is it like a nine month experience? Do you get it done? I mean, how long is that feeling yeah. out? 
Well, we, we call it running downhill. It can take longer than it needs to in many cases, but that's normally determined by the, the seller here that's just taking a, a you know longer than average time to vet these things. And, and we get it. But normally it's about a five to seven month process. Okay. From, from the very first time I get on the phone with them to the point where they're signing partnership agreements is typically five to seven. I've seen it take longer than 12 months. I've done them as quick as, quick as three months. But five to seven is okay. is a pretty standard process. Okay, that's fantastic. And what sort of stuff do people need to have prepared in order to enter into a discussion with you so that they're being efficient and can provide you with the information you would want, especially if they were going to be acquired? Really, the 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 first month of our process is all about understand is two things: is educating them on the economic models that exist today and specifically what they're designed to produce in terms of an outcome. Then it's having them educate us on what, what type of autonomy structure they're looking for. Okay, so once, once we understand, once they understand the economic models and, and of course we're asking them what they're looking for in an outcome, we can eliminate a whole swath of would-be buyers sure who their model just isn't designed to produce the outcome they seek. Mm -hmm. Once we understand the autonomy trade-off, and I also like to sprinkle in there, what's the primary motivation? Is it a monetary driver? Is it a quality of life driver? Maybe they want to grow rapidly and they're looking to uh, partner with someone who can accelerate that. If I can have those three points of information, what kind of economic model they're looking for, what autonomy trade they're comfortable with making and where the primary motivation lies, then that takes us about a month to get through. And then we can align them with a client or mo perhaps multiple clients that match, or at least on the, on the service that looks like we might have a match. And uh, from there, we dive right into the valuation. So we'll get that out of the way before they even have to spend time with the client. Okay. But you know that that there's nothing that they really have to prepare for, except have, when we do this in our first points of meeting with them, they have to know like what am i looking to get out of a partnership what's really motivating me if it's you know maximizing or de-risking my asset today for example like they want to take the cash out of the business they're in their twilight of their career they just want to monetize their business and go on autopilot for 5 years until they retire well that's clearly going to be one economic model if they're looking to divest all the stuff that they don't enjoy doing and turbocharge their growth, retain as much of their value in their current business today in the hopes of maximizing their economic outcome in the future. That's a very specific economic model that's designed to do that as well. So okay. it's just really thinking through what's motivating you and then we can go from there. Gotcha. All right. I, the the million dollar question, which I hope you don't mind that I'm going to ask uh, before you know I let everybody find out how they can reach out to you. Is how are you paid, dude? Yeah. Like, do you get paid by this person? Do you get paid by that person? What What yeah. do you do? No, it's a great question. It's really uh, our model is a new model. At least to, I've looked. I have not found another buyer advisor. So our we're paid for by our clients. Okay. If you think historically, you've had two routes to go through if you're going to look for an acquirer. You can go directly to the buyer. Uh, there are many great firms who have internal M&A teams that you mm -hmm. would interact with, and that's perfectly fine. If you know what you're doing, you understand how valuations are derived, you understand 
the deal structure and how to vet a partner for the cultural fit, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I just think it could be narrow. Uh, most people don't know what they're doing. And as a result, they end up kissing a lot of frogs and wasting a lot of time. Uh, but you can do that. The second route was to hire an, a seller advisor. There's a bunch of really good uh, investment banking firms or business brokerage firms that are out there that you can go engage. Uh, they will help you understand the M&A landscape. They'll get you deal ready, do the valuation, and then they're going to take you out to a number of firms that they will potentially transact with you. It's a better process, I think, but it's expensive. So you'll pay substantial, uh, substantial retainers and work progress fees and success fees that run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So our approach is a different, we're a buyer advisor. So clients hire us to find them. We do the same work that a seller advisor would go through. But if you transact with one of our clients, they're paying all the fees. So it's a better economic outcome. We can convert to a seller advisor agreement wherein they are paying us if we can't find a match within our current client roster. But that rarely happens. Fantastic. Well, okay. Thank you for your candor on that. I appreciate it. I, I didn't uh, just to warn all of our, or just to inform all of our, our listeners. I did totally didn't tell Alan I was going to ask him that question. So well done, sir. And I think you answered that incredibly well. I think that there are going to be people who want to reach out to you. What is the best way for them to reach out to you to find out a little bit more about what it would be like to uh, partner with you? Well, I suppose you just go right to our website, alarisacquisitions.com. Uh, Alaris means wingman. So it's pretty simple why we're named ourselves that way. They can also reach out to me at uh, my email, which is alan, A-L-L-E-N dot Darby, D-A-R-B-Y at alarisacquisitions.com. And, and we will make sure that we have those uh, those in the show notes, brother. Please follow him on LinkedIn too. He's always posting really, really great stuff. And the, the whole uh, Alaris team. Alan, thank you so much for being on the show. You're a great guest. Awesome. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Matt. If you guys have not subscribed to the podcast, please make sure you click that subscribe now button below. That way, every time we come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And if you wouldn't mind, give us a quick review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever. Uh, that way we can find out what you're thinking. Try to figure out what you can do to rise above the noise and be your own loud. What can you do differently this year and in years to come to make it so that you can serve more people, help them in the way that you want to? And one of those ways could very well be mergers and acquisitions. So for everybody at Alaris and Alan and all of us here at Proudmouth, we'll see you on the other side of the mic very soon. Thanks for listening to the Top Advisor Marketing Podcast brought to you by Proudmouth. If you want to learn more about how you can be your own loud, Visit our website, read our blog posts, attend our educational webinars, and sign up for our new Influence Accelerator Academy, where you too can learn how to truly be an influencer in your space. Have a wonderful day.